So, Rabbi, in your more than 40 years in the rabbinate, someone asked me, what are those things that surprise you, those things that you never expected or that you once expected that didn't actually come to pass? I, I, I have to tell you, this is a question people ask me now a lot. Okay, so here goes. 40 years ago, we thought that the American Jewish population would shrink to the point of absolute irrelevance. We were wrong. 40 years ago, we thought that anti-Semitism was a thing of the past. We were wrong. 40 years ago, we never expected that so many non-Orthodox Jews would be studying Torah every Shabbat morning in what is surely one of the least heralded spiritual revolutions in modern Jewish history. And 40 years ago, we underestimated how many Gentiles would be joining Jewish families and how many of them would want to study Judaism and join the Jewish people. And we also underestimated or never completely understood how many Gentiles would want to study Judaism and fall in love with the Jewish people. And 40 years ago, we never would have expected that so many Jews would turn to God as the location and the center point of their Jewish energies, that trend that we call Jewish spirituality. And we never would have expected that so many people would flock to the study of the teachings of Jewish mysticism, including Madonna, what we sometimes sloppily lump together into a bulging file folder called Kabbalah. From the Religion News Service, this is Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred. And I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin. Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida is where I work. And our guest today, yes, to talk about Jewish mysticism and Hasidism and Neo-Hasidism and Jewish spirituality, is one of the veteran teachers, may I say Rebbe's, may I even say gurus of the new Jewish spirituality, Rabbi Art Green. Art Green is a living legend. In 1968, he founded Chavarat Shalom, which was an experiment in Jewish communal living and learning, and that became the fountainhead of the Chavarat movement in American Jewish life. And then between 1973 and 1984, he taught in the Religious Studies Department of the University of Pennsylvania, and in 1984, he became the dean and then the president of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in Philadelphia. In 1993, he was appointed the Philip W. Lown Professor of Jewish Thought at Brandeis University, and he was a founding dean of the non-denominational rabbinical program at Hebrew College in Boston. We're talking to Rabbi Green today because of his new book. And this is a book that I have truly taken to heart, which says a lot, because I have to tell you, I have an entire bookshelf of nothing but Art Green's books. And I have to tell you, Rabbi Green, I am now, because I'm approaching retirement from the Congregational Rabbinate, in the process of cleaning out my study and getting rid of books. We're having a literary unetanatokev here. <laughs> who shall be thrown away and who shall exist in a storage facility? And I, I have to tell you, I don't say this to everyone, I can't get rid of your books. There's not a single book of yours that's not making the cut. 
especially your new commentary on the Jewish Siddur, on the Jewish prayer book, Well of Living Insight, comments on the Siddur in Hebrew, Sefer Be'er L'chai Ro'i. We're going to talk more about that title soon. We're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about the spirituality. We're going to talk about God, American Judaism, American Jews. Rabbi Green, welcome. It's good to have you here. Thank you. Nice to be here. I'll comment, I'll comment on your introduction in a while. <laughs> so you and I have known each other for more than 40 years, and we've had many deep conversations over the years in Philadelphia, in New York, and even over coffee in Jerusalem. Of all those places, I'd rather be in Jerusalem. So let's just start at the beginning. Can we talk about your childhood? Where did you grow up? What was, what was Judaism and your Jewish education like when you were a kid? Uh, I'm from Newark, New Jersey. Newark, New Jersey was a city that had 60,000 Jews when I was a kid. They're almost all gone now, of course, out to the suburbs. But it was a, it was a vibrant Jewish community. My home was a very secular home. My dad was raised by immigrant Jewish parents as an atheist. They had lost their Hasidic faith when they moved from the shtetl to Lodz in the, in, 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 around the turn of the century. By the time they came to America, they were fully atheists. And dad was proud that he had been raised in an atheist, enlightened home. Uh, mom was from a Jew traditional Jewish home, not orthodox. Grandpa's tagor shop was open on Shabbos, because Saturday was business day. But upstairs from the tagor shop in the apartment, it was Shabbos. It was that kind of Jewish home. And uh, my mother's parents were a very big influence on me. By the time I was seven or eight, I was already beginning to dip deeply into Judaism. I insisted we not have Christmas stockings in the house anymore, but Hanukkah, Hanukkah, Menorah. I, um, I started taking my mother to synagogue on Friday night. I think she came along with me mainly to escape dad's bridge game and the smoke-filled room around it. But, um, but somehow we, my mother and I wound up going to shul together. I should say temple together. It was Temple B'nai Abraham with Joachim Prince. That must have been an amazing experience to be present with Rabbi Prince. Well, it was there were about 1,500 people there on a Friday night. Um, people went to hear Rabbi Prince speak and to hear the cantorial concert with, with Abe Shapiro and the, and the professional choir. I noticed after a while, at age eight or so, that I was probably the only person in the whole room who opened the book. Uh, nobody, nobody participated. You just watched, you watched the show and you really waited for Prince to speak. So you were there to bask in his glory. That's right. That's right. You were there to bask in his glory. And by the time I was 12, I had an incident which had me walk out of that synagogue and never set foot in the, in the, in the sanctuary again. Pray tell. Well, I was... Uh, I had, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> I had a good Hebrew teacher who got me to go off to Camp Ramah when I was 12. And I came back from Ramah sort of Jewishly educated in a way that didn't quite fit Temple B'nai Abraham. We had Hebrew school on Shabbat morning. You were not allowed to write during classes on Shabbat morning, but we had class on Shabbat Tuesday and Thursday. After Shabbat morning class, you went to something called junior congregation. But I had been to camp. I knew how to daven. I knew how to daven from my grandparents' synagogue, and I didn't want to go to junior congregations. So I walked into the main service. I came in during the Torah reading because I had been in Hebrew school, and I sat there and I stood up very quietly and said the Amida and then sat down and listened. After after the service, I went up to uh, say good Shabbos to Rabbi Prince, whom I already knew. 
And there was an elderly rabbi emeritus there named Julius Silberfeld. He must have been the rabbi there in the 1930s. And he said to me in his super bitter voice, are you the young man who was standing during the service? We don't do that sort of thing here. And they never walked back in. It just said to me, it just said to me, my grandparents' shul, where people cried and occasionally screamed out and things like that, was real. And this place was phony. And it it's was really, sort of how I gave up on that kind of liberal Judaism. It's really amazing. The whole Newark thing. Of course, when you mention Newark, New Jersey, it's a, a city that I'm quite familiar with, having lived in Essex County for a number of years. I think we've uh -huh. played Jewish geography in that sense. Your family moved to Maplewood at a certain point? No, Did I get that right? Springfield. The Springfield. Okay, cool. So we were, we were really all from Patterson, but my dad got a job teaching at Weekway, which was that all Jewish public high school in, in Newark that Philip Roth writes about. Yeah, well, all right, I was just going to invoke Philip Roth. So there's... That was a history teacher there. Roth was one of his students. Mm -hmm. So there's this, this nexus, the Newark nexus of people who were somewhat alienated from Judaism. We could throw Michael Lerner in as well. Michael Lerner and I sat together in Hebrew school when we were 13, if you could believe that. Michael Lerner, radical Jewish thinker, founder of Tikkun Magazine, you're the same generation. Same generation. Philip Roth, older, mm -hmm. of course. So you come from this community. You have a decent Jewish education through Ramah. Who were your teachers? Who are your rebbies? Who who made you who you are? Well, first of all, I was an American Jewish kid who was just the right age to gain maximum benefit from all the great teachers whom Hitler cast up on, on America's shores. Joachim Prince. When I got two frum for Joachim Prince, I went to Max Gruenwald, who was his brother-in-law, who was rabbi in Milburn, New Jersey. He was a more traditional kind of German-Jewish rabbi. Um, my Hebrew school teacher for five of my eight years in that Hebrew school was a man named Arie Ron, who was a Viennese who lived in Palestine for a number of years and then came to America, a sort of Zionist Hebraist. When I was 16, I went off to Brandeis. At Brandeis, you could get the best Middle European education you could find anywhere in America in those days. Nachum Glatzer taught me Bible. Nachum Glatzer, who had been Franz Rosenzweig's disciple in the Lair House, and who introduced both Rosenzweig and Franz Kafka to America. And when I was a junior, Alexander Altman came to Brandeis from England, also a Berlin rabbi, a Berlin rabbi and professor who'd been in England for a number of years. He was saved by getting a job in England. And um, in 1960, Altman taught the first course on Jewish mysticism ever taught in an American university. And I was a student in the class. And so I learned, I learned about Kabbalah from, from, in the university. I learned about Kabbalah from Altman. But by that time, I had also met Zalman Schachter, mm -hmm. who was another, another uh, European survivor who came to America and uh, came, as, came, came, as, came as, as, as a teenager. But they were all Europeans. I didn't take anybody seriously unless they had a Middle European accent. It's one of the reasons why I was never attracted to Mordecai Kaplan. He was too damn American for me. His thinking was American. He was influenced by American. Dewey and, 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 and pragmatism and so on. Where was, the, where was the angst? Where was the geist? Where was Nietzsche <laughs> uh, in, in, in Mordecai Kaplan? It was all too, it felt all too superficial because it was too American. 
Of course, there's Heschel in there. And then, of course, I went to JTS. I went, uh, after a year at the seminary, I was quite unhappy, and my I was ready to leave. My Talmud teacher said to me, would you stay if you had a special program with Professor Heschel? So I became Abraham Joshua Heschel's private student for four years, and that was one of the great privileges of my life. So they were all people with a kind of East European background, trained in Germany, having wound up in America because of Hitler, not very happily so, happy to have survived, of course, but not very happy to be dealing with these American kids who knew nothing. But I was good at Hebrew, I was pretty precocious, and so I was somehow a more a more serious student of some of these people. One of the one of the Americans they could they they felt it was worth investing in, I would say. So Art, I have to I have to ask you this. You were one of the most influential and you are one of the most influential teachers of Jewish spirituality, of mysticism. And one of the people who really is responsible for reconstructing, as it were, I'm not using that term playfully, this whole notion of Hasidism and bringing to light this movement, a subtle movement, but a movement of neo-Hasidism. Can you, can you talk about that? Because here's the thing. Many American Jews and many Americans, through the media, perhaps uh, through various television shows, I want to say shtisel, but these were not these are not Hasidim, these are mitnagdim. Uh, but nonetheless, we have a perception of Hasidism as being irredeemably old world, old-fashioned, irredentist, uh, obscurantist. How do we rescue Hasidism from what it seems to have become? Well, there, 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 there are three, three or four different questions in there, and I'll try to pull them apart. Um, in the early 19th century, the first or second decade of the 19th century, the Jewish Wissenschaft scholars, the Jewish academic scholars who created much of modern Judaism, invented a new term that had never existed before. It was called mainstream Judaism. I even found, I think, what its first source one of the one of those scholars just wrote an article called "The Judentum in Hauptströmungen," Judaism in its mainstreams, and I think that's where the term may have come from. Mainstream Judaism meant Judaism that would be acceptable to our non-Jewish neighbors in an enlightened modern world. Anything that doesn't fit, we sweep under the rug by saying, "Oh, that's not mainstream. We don't have to teach it." The main thing that mainstream Judaism was created for was to exclude the mystical tradition. Not to mention anything that was to the east of, let's say, Warsaw. That's right, Prussia. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Um, uh, Hasidism and mysticism were considered superstitious, old-fashioned, primitive, embarrassing. And so they weren't to be taught. Now, that lasted, I said, that happened about 1810. In 1965, when I was a rabbinical student at JTS, Abraham Joshua Heschel was told by the the dean he could not teach Hasidism as one of his regular courses because Hasidism is not mainstream Judaism. He had to teach Maimonides one year and Yudha Levi the next year. He could teach Hasidism to a small group on his own time if he wanted to, but it was not a course to be offered by the rabbinical seminary. I'm happy to say now that one of, now one of my students teaches 
Jewish mysticism there very happily. But that's that's partly my work. Um, none of the rabbinical schools, none of the non-Orthodox rabbinical schools taught mysticism. The only place you'd studied that taught mysticism were the Chabad yeshivas. Um, because the Orthodox too, modern Orthodoxy agreed with that. Modern Orthodoxy disagreed with reform about halakha, but agreed with reform about the irrelevance of the mystical tradition and better to leave it better to leave it hidden. All that began to change around 1980, I would say. Um, you see, I was a college student in the in the in the early 60s, and that was the very beginning of the new interest in spirituality among Western intellectuals. Um, I remember D.T. Suzuki coming around to campus talking about Zen. And then somebody wrote a book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Making and Zen and Zen and Archery and Zen and this. And we were very interested in Zen Buddhism. And then it was the turn of the Maharishi and the various Swami, Swami Satchitananda and Integral Yoga and so on. And then of course the Tibetan Buddhists came and the idea that Truth was to be found on a Tibetan mountaintop. All of this has to do, I think, with a certain sense of moral failure in the Western world. Totally agree with you. Totally agree. In the middle of the 20th century. The Western world, the essential faith of the Western world throughout the 18th and 19th century was not Judaism and not Christianity. It was scientism. We believe that science will solve all our problems. We believe in progress. It might be lightly wrapped up in liberal Judaism, but essentially what we believe in is science and scientific proof. Proof. In the middle of the 20th century, scientism had a major crisis. It's the name of that crisis is Auschwitz and Hiroshima, which are not, of course, morally equivalent. But Auschwitz was, how could the country with all those Nobel Prizes in science have done that? And Hiroshima was, what, how, what is it to live in the nuclear shadow? And that's when existentialism began to penetrate into America. By the way, can I just jump in for a second? We are now going through another ruptured moment in the story of technology and how it has invaded our lives. So just as a footnote, because I don't want to forget this, is this going to push us into a different theological dimension right now? Are we going to be responding to this appropriately? I think the bigger piece of that will be AI. Yes, yes, um, yes. And I'm probably, I'm rather glad that I won't live too much into that, into that era. Halavai, we want you to live and see the whole thing. <laughs> I don't know what, it, I don't know what it'll do. Uh, there is a fellow in England, um, his, um, his name is slipping in my mind right now, who wrote a book about, about Jewish theology and artificial intelligence. And he had some interesting things to say. Unfortunately, he doesn't know Kabbalah or Hasidism. So I think he missed, he missed a lot of the best points. But uh, yes, I think I think I think that definitely will affect us. But but I think some of the best minds in the West began in the '60s and '70s to say, how can we save ourselves from destruction? How can we save ourselves either from nuclear holocaust or environmental holocaust? And the idea was maybe there is some ancient wisdom that we skipped over in the process of rushing into modernity that will help us save the world. And so then it was. The Buddhists and the and, and and the yogis and so on and Kabbalah came along as a part of that. This is esoteric Judaism. It's been forgotten. Maybe there's some secret there, and that rediscovery of Kabbalah, Jeff, that runs from from the lowest level, which is the Kabbalah centers, which were which were, as far as I'm concerned, uh, um, a kind of uh, economic ripoff 
to the highest level, which is my dear friend Daniel Matt's translation of the Zohar, published by Stanford University Press, which is one of the great works of Jewish scholarship in America. And that the Pritzker family, one of the wealthiest Jewish families in America, picked up the tab for that. Now, let me, let me tell you the story. Margot Pritzker, married into the family, obviously, um, is um, a British Jew of an old, the old British Moroccan aristocracy. Mm. And her, her maiden name, or the main part of her family, was Sikri. And she's a descendant of Rabbi Elazar Azikri, the author of Yedid Nefesh. And other hits. And other and other bits of, of Jewish mystical poetry. How cool. So she has a family link to it. And she was studying Midrash and became interested in Kabbalah. And um, and her teacher, um, her teacher, Yechiel Pupko, said, well, here's a, here's a good idea. They called me and said, would you like to translate the Zohar into English? My jaw dropped. And I said, of course, I couldn't begin to do that. But I know exactly who should. So one of the things I have merit for in this world is having been the shark and the matchmaker between uh, between the Pritzkers and 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 Daniel Mann. You know what's interesting to me about this failure of modernity and the enlisting of esoteric religious traditions in the battle for the soul mm -hmm. is that. In the 50s, with the beatniks, it was Buddhism. In the 60s, it was Hinduism. We've always looked East, haven't we? Mm -hmm. And and now it's Judaism's turn. Well, it's along with, I wouldn't say it's Judaism's turn. I wish I could say that all the hundreds of thousands of Jews who turned to Buddhism are now turning to Judaism, but they're not. Well, when I we, say it's Judaism's turn, I mean the culture is now interested in hearing the culture what, is, yes. what Judaism has to say. But I want to say that we rabbis, we Jewish educators, failed very badly in the second half of the 20th century because there were thousands and thousands of serious Jewish seekers. And once they could not believe that God was an old fellow in the sky with a white beard, the childhood fantasy, we did not give them um, an adult notion of what it means to be a person of Jewish faith. We didn't have it. We were too tied up in that childhood story. If you don't believe it literally, then you can't say, Baruch Adonai, then you don't belong in a synagogue, then go find yourself another religion. And I think we were also very tied up. Another religion. Really, pardon me for jumping in, but... I think we we're also really tied up in the ethnic defense system. Starting with the creation of Israel, the Six-Day War, et cetera, et cetera, we became, as it were, ethnic agents. And I think there's an incredibly appropriate place for that. But I think we left the God stuff on the cutting room floor. Well, that was partly, you're absolutely right, I agree with you. But I think it was partly because after the Holocaust, we were so angry with God, or had so much lost our faith that we didn't know what to say. When I was a kid, as soon as you talked about God, somebody would say, well, where was God in 1944? End of conversation. Um, and, and it's taken us a long time. I think the reappropriation of the mystical tradition is part of the healing of the Jewish body politic 75 years after the Holocaust. 
I think it's taken us a long time to be able to talk about God. And now we're starting to be ready to. What should we be saying about God? We should understand God as the underlying oneness of being, the underlying oneness of the universe, to which we onto which we put a human face because we need to. God doesn't have a human face. God isn't a person in the sky. Um, I remember Heschel jumping up and down in class one day and saying, Torah mina shamayim is not a geographical statement. The Torah coming from heaven is not a geographical statement. It doesn't mean the Torah came down from the sky. It might mean the heavens in the heart. In, in From heaven might mean something else. It might mean it's divine. It's a way of saying Torah is divine. Not that it came out of the sky. But we are somehow, we are somehow still tied into that picture. Tied into that picture. And once that picture is hard for you, then where do you go? So I think you have to go to a God who is the underlying oneness of being. And that's what the name of God in Hebrew means. yud heh vav the name of God where you're not a God to pronounce, means was, is, will be all at once. I've been it's teaching it for years. I quote you. Yeah. We love it. Yeah. The impossible what is, was, will be. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. And that's and that's how we have to understand divinity. And, it's interesting. Uh, you're, you're precisely the same age as Paul Simon. Mm-hmm, yes, that's right. And I recently reviewed his new work, Seven Psalms, in which he does something really audacious and quite wonderful. And I hope that it will have a transformational role in some American worship, which is that he actually invents new metaphors for God. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, are we frozen in our God metaphors? And what can we do to liberate some of the metaphors that are already there in our literature? That's why I fell in love with the Zohar. The Zohar, which is the great work of Kabbalah, has endless metaphors for God. Yeah, God is a father, but God is also a lake and a river and the, and the sun and the moon and, 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 and the Shekhinah, the presence of God, is the, is the earth and is the soil and is Jerusalem. And all of those are metaphors. Almost every noun in scripture becomes a metaphor for something in God. It's a dynamic, energetic flow of divine energy. And that flow of divine energy can be captured in any ways. You may see it as streams of light, or you may see it as streams of love coming from coming from a divine parent. But if you're reading the Song of Songs, the Midrash and the Song of Songs, you see it as erotic love, as God, 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 God embracing His partner on Earth. So, um, so opening up the metaphors, yes, absolutely. Um, I think Christianity froze its metaphor in a single human figure, and I think conventional, non-mystical Judaism throws its metaphor in that old guy in the sky. And both of them have to be uh, have to be broken through because God is everything. We're going to get back to God is everything in a few minutes. We'll be right back. This is Rabbi Jeff Salkin. This is Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred. I'm the rabbi of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida, and this is coming to us from Religion News Service and our guest, Rabbi Art Green. So, Rabbi Green, before we get to the discussion of your new work, which has its rightful place 
on my bookshelf, your commentary on the Siddur, on the Jewish prayer book. I've noticed over the course of my career, more than 40 years, that quite often it is the case that people come into the sanctuary and they're like proverbial deer caught in the headlights. What is the problem with Jewish prayer and with worship, and can we fix it? I've noticed that when people walk into a church, especially a Catholic church, they tend to sit down quietly and prepare themselves for prayer. When people walk into a synagogue, hey, Fred, how are you? What's going on there? Blah, 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 until somebody strums on a guitar or bangs a gavel and um, and, this, and the service begins. Um, they're very, Jews are very talkative social people and they like seeing each other. And they are there for social reasons, at least as much as for spiritual reasons. And breaking through that is hard. Um, but there are there are new ways to talk about prayer and there are new ways of doing it. I've seen a lot of creativity in Jewish worship in recent years. First of all, we have rediscovered the value of silence. We talk too much. We have so many words in our prayer. On Yom Kippur, we go all day long blabbering words. But Yom Kippur is supposed to be about self-confrontation and self-discovery. So how about some time for silence? How about some time for introspection? Many people are now, many synagogues now have a meditation service sort of optional before the main service. Some people, some rabbis are introducing moments of silence into the service. Before you blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, you have a five-minute silence. Then the sound comes out of the silence. It's a whole different world. After the Amida, if people are saying the Amida with words, give people some time for silence. There is, there is much to be done there. Um, there's much to be done with singing. Um, the Hasidic nigun, the Hasidic melody, which doesn't require words, and which traditionally you sing over and over and over again, and get people to close their eyes and sing a melody. Um, that's a kind of, that's, those are acts of worship that are different than please rise and turn to page 23. The very formalized please rise and turn to page 23 kind of worship is not working very well anymore. And so finding other ways to do it taking phrases from the prayer book and using them as chants like mantras, Yahid Cheha Olamim, over and over again, single one, life of all the worlds, and have people chant it, things like that. So I do see, I do see different kinds of experiments that are working. Um, when I was still at the rabbinical school, I'm retired now, when I was still at the rabbinical school, we had students in charge of our daily minyan several days a week. Sometimes they would do outlandish things. You know, stand on your head and pray and, and pray while walking around in a circle and smiling at people and so on. Things I didn't like, things that weren't for me. But I never said, you may not do that. Because I felt, let 10,000 flowers bloom. Let's try lots and lots of things and see what sticks. It's not that my old-fashioned way of davening is being so successful. So let's find, let's find what will work for the next generation. And let's what? trust the next generation to try what would your ideal worship service look like and feel like if you could construct it for yourself? I'm a Chavoraju. It would be in a small group of people I really care about. It would be in a room of no more than 15 or 20 people, perhaps. People I knew who cared about me and I cared about them. And we could talk to each other about what we're doing as we pray, as well as praying together. Most Jews are much too shy 
spiritually to talk about what prayer means to them. I used to go to a very wonderful egalitarian minyan, a very wonderful egalitarian traditional service here in here in Boston, here in Newton, and everybody knew how to daven, but you couldn't get people to talk about what it means to pray. They knew how to say the words, they knew how to chant them right, they knew the right tune for the right tune for this holiday and the right tune for that holiday. But what are we doing here, folks? What is this prayer about? Why are we praying? What does it say about what we believe? Or if we don't believe that, then why are we still praying? What does it mean? Having that conversation and praying among people with whom I can have that conversation means an awful lot to me. There was a famous professor in Jerusalem who used to say, the people I can pray with, I can't talk to, and the people I can talk to, I can't pray with. And I'd like to be able to do both. So that's a that's a first condition for me for an ideal prayer service. You know, by the way, I'm going to get back to this in a few minutes. Your now weekly Torah commentary, which I read, forgive me, religiously, and I use with my own Torah yeah. students. And you said something this past week that was so cool. And that is the idea of the biur, the interpretation, and the be'er, the, the well, that the biur, the interpretation, comes out of a well, or there is a well that comes out of interpretation, which brings us to the Well of Living Insight, comments on the Siddur, and its name in Hebrew is Sefer Be'er L'chai L'ro'i. Now, can you unpack that little joke for us? It's kind of cool. Well, Be'er L'chai Ro'i, that's the name of the well that Hagar, Abraham's Abraham's concubine, who Abraham's first concubine or or second wife, mother of Ishmael, when she goes out to the wilderness and um, and she and Ishmael are desperately thirsty, she finds a well. And she names that well Be'er Lechai Ro'i. It's an impossible thing to translate. Be'er means well. But Lechai Ro'i, is it where God sees me? Or where I see God in life? Where divine life sees me? Lechai Ro'i. The living God sees me? Well, do I see God or does God see me? The famous Christian mystic Meister Eckhart was quoted as saying, the eye with which I see God and the eye with which God sees me is the same eye. Once, once again, the eye through which I see God and the eye through which God sees me is the same eye. And so of we're course, standing on opposite sides of the same eye. And again, the pun of the ayin, okay, of the again, of, of, of the well, the wellspring, and the ain, okay, the ayin, as it were, of the eye is really yeah. interesting. And the be'er and the be'ur, and so it all fits together. Now, ro'i is written without a vav in that verse, and it happens to stand for Rabbi Avraham Yitzchak, which is my name. So there's a little bit of that, too. <laughs> there would be a lot of that there. By the way, Hagar is the only person in the entire Tanakh, as far as I can tell, who actually names God, El Roi. Yes, yes, yes. So and let me in, ask you. In the beginning of Deuteronomy, it says, um, as it introduces the, the speeches of Moses, it says, Ho'il Moshe be'er et ha-Torah hazot. Moses was willing to explain this Torah, but some of the commentators say, Moses turned Torah into a well where you can always draw forth more water. Mm. 
So, so I like playing with the with the wellsprings with the wellsprings of understanding and the wellsprings of knowledge. And that's another that's another metaphor. We talk about new metaphors for God, getting away from the single metaphor. God is the well out of which we draw the water of the water of enlightenment and knowledge and awareness. It's so gorgeous. I, I I'm going through your book. I am so deeply moved by it. So I need to ask you, what did you learn in the process of creating this commentary on this Siddur, which often focuses on a simple phrase? By the way, I should tell you that I'm in the process of writing a, another commentary on the Reformed liturgy, but this time for teenagers. Mm -hmm. I'll be quoting a little bit from you, because I think that we need to unpack what these words of prayer can mean for our young people. What did you learn in this process? I learned that the line between revelation, inspiration, and creativity is impossible to draw. Sometimes I would look at a phrase in the prayer book and an idea would come to me. And when I finished my prayers, when I finished davening in the morning, I'd go write it down. And I say, did I discover that? Or was that a gift that was given to me? Did I create it? Or was this a moment of revelation, a moment of ongoing revelation? And I can never answer that question. I have that same experience. It's so uncanny. So I'm grateful to God. I'm, I, You know, my religious life begins in gratitude. That's what it's all about in some ways. Especially now being more than 80 years old and knowing what the psalmist has to say about that. Um, it's all a gift. Everything is a gift. And I feel every day is a gift. And gratitude to God is really the beginning point of my of my spiritual journey. So when an insight would come to me, I would say thank you. And I'm not saying the ideas aren't mine. They are mine, but they are also they also belong to someone much bigger than me and come from a reservoir that I was able to tap into or a well that I was able to draw something out of. And that's a very humbling, that's a very humbling realization. That it's not you, it's not that I'm a smart guy, it's that somehow I've been given the privilege of tapping into the great well. You ever have an experience, I have this all the time, where I come up with an interpretation and I say to myself, if I didn't come up with this, then someone else certainly would have. And probably someone else did a few hundred years ago, and you'll find it someday. <laughs> That's also true, you know. But what's interesting to me about what you're saying is, and it's something that I've believed for a while, I, I, I think a great philosopher said this, and I don't know who it was, that the reason why the Torah is given to us, and we have it in the scroll without vowels, is that it is only God's revelation in potential form. It's like a powdered drink that you have mm -hmm. to add water to. And it's not really the Torah until you bring your own voice to it and complete it. Absolutely, absolutely. It's only half, the, the, the Hasidic masters say, Baal Shem Tov's grandson said, it's only half a Torah. Written Torah is only half a Torah. And the other half comes from us. Now, when you speak of the Baal Shem's grandson, you're talking perhaps of Nachman of Ratzlav, yes? No, actually, he's a great-grandson. His, ah. his uncle, a man named Ephraim of Stelikov. Yeah. My 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 bad. But I can't let the moment pass and I, without just going to a whole different level here. And that is that you 
more than anyone else from an academic point of view and also from a popular point of view, have been responsible. I think Elie Wiesel of Blessed Memory did this a lot as well, but that was mostly stories. You've been responsible more than anyone else of our generation in exposing American Jews and others to the teachings and commentaries of the Hasidic rabbis, of the Hasidic teachers, and you brought them back into their rightful place. What is it that has attracted you to them? And I do need to talk to you about your magnum opus, which is, I think, one of the great spiritual biographies of our time, and that is your biography, probably your greatest work, Tormented Master, which is your biography of Reb Nachman of Bratzel. But let's just go back a second. What is it about the Hasidic masters that draws you and that fires you so much? When I discovered Hasidism, it was different Judaism. It was Judaism that that was willing to ask daring philosophical questions about being and nothingness, about, about what, what this journey is all about. I was always a believer in science, of course, a believer in evolution. And I see, I see myself living for sort of half an instant in evolutionary time. Here I'm, I'm here for a flick of an eye. And I ask myself, what for? What is what is it about? What do I have to do here? That quest for that quest for meaning in the face of the of the magnitude of the evolutionary journey that each of us is part of overwhelms me. And in Hasidism, I somehow I somehow found an answer to it. You are here to increase awareness. You are here to serve by making more people aware of the magnitude of this vision, of the greatness of this vision. You were here to increase da'at. Da'at in Hebrew, it doesn't mean just knowledge, but it really means awareness. If the word mindfulness weren't taken yet, I would probably use that. Um, it, to, increase, to increase awareness of the mysterious sense of what this universe is and what this journey of life is all about. And I found that the Hasidic masters were really spiritual teachers in that sense. They were trying to tell people uh, to open themselves, to open their hearts, to understanding what this journey is and why we're alive, why we're here. And uh, of course, my terms for doing it are somewhat different than theirs. They were in the 18th century. They were living in an exclusively, narrowly um, defended Jewish world. I live in a big open world. For me, the Torah is a gift to humanity, not just to the Jewish people. So there's uh, there, there's a great deal of difference, but but the way and the way they did it, the way they did it, was by creative reinterpretation. They would take a biblical verse, a familiar verse, and read it in a shockingly new way, and that shocking new reading was somehow meant to open the mind to make you jump. I'd say the the Hasidic reading of a verse is like the slap of the Zen master. It's here to wake you up and to take you to a different rung of consciousness. And I believe that the human mind has many rungs of consciousness. I think our rational self is only the tip of the iceberg and that we go deeper and deeper. For me, the journey to God is not a journey up, but a journey in. I love that. That's the most, that's the most important sort of departure point of my theology. We are going, we are going toward God as we delve more deeply into what mind really is and what the self really is, and then the transcendent self, which is beyond the individual self. 
And it's a journey, it's a journey inward, not a journey upward. Even though we have so much of that meta, that vertical metaphor in Judaism, I like to say the giving of the Torah is a vertical metaphor for an inward journey. And uh, that's that's really helped me a great deal. When I reread Tormented Master, your biography of Reb Nachman of Bratzlo, who was, I think, the most canny of the Hasidic teachers, it makes me think of something that's been going on certainly since 2020 with the outbreak of COVID, but even before that. And that is this sense of despair that so many people have. I, I think it's fair to say, and I know that Wiesel of Blessed Memory understood this as well because he wrote about it, there is this Eastern European gene of depression, isn't there? And it feels like several of the great Hasidic masters, especially Reb Nachman, struggled with depression or, or struggled with their inner demons. I'm wondering what Torah they bring to us today that would help heal us in this moment. Rabbi Nachman certainly struggled with depression, but you may be right. You, know, you may you may look at the tradition of Russian literature and Russian music and also see a kind of a kind of depressing a depressing view of humanity that uh, that that's 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 there in Eastern European world. I don't know if those things are related or not, but I wouldn't be I wouldn't be totally surprised. Rabbi Nachman struggled greatly with depression, but he insisted that you must never give up. You must always find some bit of goodness within yourself, some spark of good that you have that you have done or that you can do. And with that spark, you somehow begin to you begin to sing a nigun, you begin to come alive, and you bring yourself back to life. And how many of his meditations start with something that could be written off as formulaic, but is so real? Da. You gotta know this. Yes. You have to internalize this thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have to bring it in. That da, that da is be is again know as in be aware, become a be, become aware. Open yourself, open yourself to this awareness. And da dalid ayin. Let's let's play it backwards. Ayin dalid is aid. It's know and be a witness to. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back. And we're back again. This has been Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred. I'm Rabbi Jeff Salkin. With me has been our guest, one of the most influential Jews of our time, Rabbi Art Green. I have to say this, and this is something that Art taught me years ago, that I want to share with everybody. And it's about spatial metaphors especially because we're recording this, it's almost before Shavuot, almost before the festival of the giving of the Torah. Whenever you hear this podcast, you got to know that. <laughs> and there the spatial metaphor is the ascent up Sinai, which again is not a geographic issue, as Rabbi Heschel would have said, but it's it's a spiritual issue. And one of the things that Rabbi Green taught me years ago in an essay that he wrote or a talk that he gave that perhaps he has forgotten, but that I have remembered because I inscribed it on my heart, is that 
the patriarchs and Moses all have mountains in their stories. Jacob doesn't have a mountain, but Jacob has a ladder, which is basically a mountain, mm-hmm. just yes. an, another way of putting it, right? But, so, in other words, we find God in the heights of experience, in an ascent, but what Art Green taught me, and I've been teaching this to people for years, and it's, a, it's really a redemptive piece of wisdom, is that they also each have wells. Mm-hmm. They also have wells. In other words, it's a concave experience as well. It's not only going up, it's also going deep within. And Rabbi Art Green has dedicated his life to this paradoxical sense that as we go deeper, we go higher. And so our our thanks to our good friend, our guest, our teacher, Rabbi Art Green. Art, Rabbi Green, I can't wait for our paths to cross again. And I invite everyone here to follow my regular column of the same name, Martini Judaism, on Religion News Service, religionnews.com. Our producer is Jay Woodward. We get production assistance from Lance Roger Axt. Elsie Owen keeps the engine running smoothly. Martini Judaism is a Blue Jay Atlantic production for Religion News Service. Now, I have to tell you, Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred, this podcast is available on Spotify, Google, Apple, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts. It would be so helpful if you download our podcast and leave us a five-star rating. Many thanks, and see you again soon. Shalom. Peace.